Heavenly Father, do thank you for the joy and the participation of every member of this body by your spirit. I thank you, Lord, because it's uplift, it's uplifting and it's encouraging and reminding us of the fact that we are not in this alone, that our walk of faith is not a solo sport. It's a team sport, Father, as I like to say. And Father, it is by design that way because we're so much better together than we are apart. And, and your glory is magnified when you can knit together so many who are different and in their own ways weak and without power in our humanity. But, Lord, you take all of that material and you bring it together through the power of the Spirit and you do some miraculous things with it, Lord, in our hearts first and then by our influence in others' hearts. And uh, that's, why we, that's why we do church, Father. That's why we gather. That's why this assembly matters to us. But as always, Father, we must remember, as you call us to do in your word, that it is a means to an end. It is an equipping for service. The service begins here in this building, but it doesn't end here, Lord. So I thank you, Lord, that you've, you've begun that equipping and continue that equipping. Now, Father, call us to use it, however, wherever, whenever you call us to do it. And don't let us sit still, Father. Don't let us be complacent and content with what we know and what we have. But call us, Father, to seek more for your glory. And let this word this morning have that intended effect. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, today is the big day, right? Today's the big day we wait all season for. You know what I mean, right? Chapter 11 of Hebrews. This is it. You know, as a Bible teacher, there are a few special chapters in all the Bible that I find myself returning to time and time again as I teach in one place or another. Chapters in the law, for example, like Genesis chapter 3, Leviticus 26, passages in the prophets like Daniel 9, actually all of Daniel for that matter, uh, Psalm 119, Isaiah 11, and most of Isaiah really, uh, Jeremiah 31. Some of these are probably ringing bells. Some of them may not be familiar to you, but these are hallmark chapters of Scripture that explain so much of our faith. In the New Testament, there are similar key chapters. You can list them in various epistles or gospels. But of all of those examples, I don't think there's any more helpful or inspiring chapter of Scripture when you get to the topic of faith than Hebrews chapter 11. We can teach every principle of doctrine of the Christian faith from the examples that are found in this one chapter of Scripture. Every key doctrine of our faith is represented here through these examples. In fact, this chapter is a little bit like walking through a living museum from Genesis to Revelation, at least in one sense or another. And the writer's purpose in this chapter is to serve as an inspiring set of examples which contrast with the earlier warning we just completed in chapter 10. The warning concerning those who would shrink back rather than those who would walk in faith. And if we're caught in an apostasy, God forbid, one that may have been triggered by our fears of persecution or by laziness or by the attraction of the world in one form or another, if we ever find ourselves in that situation or perhaps we're there now or in struggle with that right now, how else would you expect God to inspire us to move forward into obedience except through his word, primarily through the examples of those who've gone before us in the faith and succeeded under the very same circumstances we may be facing today. Testimonies of those who know what we know and feel what we feel and have no more nor less than we have in meeting those challenges, and they persevered to something good. Stories of ordinary men and women who found themselves doing the right thing under circumstances 
that included fear and doubt and persecution and trials of one kind or another. And because they moved forward, they pleased God through the strength that he gave them. If that's true for them, that's true for us. They're not more special. They're just held out as example so that we would follow suit. And so Hebrews 11 is that chapter. Commonly, it's called the Hall of Faith. The Hall of Faith, as opposed to how we would say today, the Hall of Fame, right? This is the Hall of Faith. It explains the form and purpose of faith. The form and the purpose of faith. And it drives its message home with a bunch of examples, all taken out of the Old Testament, of men and women who lived out their faith despite facing various earthly trials or barriers or temptations, all of which would have conspired to lead them to forsake their walk with the Lord rather than to go forward. And yet, counterintuitively, it made them better, not weaker. And so it's no surprise that the key word in this chapter is faith. It appears no less than 24 times in this chapter and twice more in the form of faithful or believe, because this chapter is all about becoming imitators of saints who came before us in exhibiting patience so as to inherit the promises. That's what this is about. Now, because each of these examples are rooted in the Old Testament, in stories of the Old Testament, you might imagine that as we go through it, we're going to revisit those stories one at a time, at least long enough to make sure we understand the context and the purpose of the example now in chapter 11. So we'll be doing this as we go. In fact, the very first thing the writer begins with here is a two-verse opening to explain the nature, the purpose, and the value of having saving faith, from which then he launches into his examples. So let's begin there, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. These are verses that I hope for many of us are are so familiar that they've been committed to memory. They have for me. He says in verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it men of old gained approval. Now, let's take this apart carefully. And for as familiar as it is, I find, in my experience anyway, that there's some elements of it that are often overlooked, and yet they're critical. This sets up the premise of the chapter. What is the nature of faith? What is the purpose of faith? And what is the value to us of faith? First, he begins with the word now. And that's important because it connects this thought to the chapter we just covered in chapter 10. In fact, the prior four chapters in which the writer was trying to get us to avoid apostasy and the consequences that will come from it, the consequences he explained in chapter 10. If you're to avoid apostasy, if you're to see the reward that is held out for you, then you have to understand what God expects. What are the expectations of faith? If we are to inherit the full reward, then we have to live with a full appreciation of what faith is and what it requires. And from there, from the now, the writer gives us the biblical definition of faith, including saving faith. First, he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The word in Greek here for assurance, hypostasis, it boils down to two principal meanings which work together to really give you the understanding of what assurance is saying here. It has an objective meaning and a subjective meaning. The objective meaning of the word in Greek is the reality of something, the truth or the existence of something. Secondly, the subjective meaning is to have a viewpoint about something, to have a viewpoint. Now you get the difference between objective and subjective. What is true versus what I think. But in this case, both meanings are working together in the writer's purpose. He's saying faith is having a viewpoint that is rooted in the reality of what we know to be true. It's a viewpoint. It's not wishful thinking. In other words, 
you will hear people use the word faith as a substitute for wish. I, I have faith in something in the sense that I wish it to be, but I really don't have any confidence. Why? Because it's not rooted in anything substantive. I don't have any truth behind it. There's nothing factual that would lead me to have this confidence. It's just faith in the abstract. It's the subjective without the objective side. Faith is a perspective that understands the certainty of certain things which cannot be proven. For example, do you know what would happen if you jumped off the Empire State Building? Do you know what would happen? You would answer me, I'm sure, this way. Yes, I know, I would fall and I would hit the ground and die. Not to be morbid, but you get the point, right? There's, there's a certain conclusion that we would all come to without any doubt, right? How do you know that? Have you ever done it? Well, self-evidently, no, you're still sitting here. So how do you know that? Well, you know the law of gravity is universal. So you can safely predict the outcome of standing in midair from that height, right? And you know the distance of that fall would certainly be enough to accelerate your body to the point where it could not survive an impact with the ground. So you have a perspective, you have a viewpoint, a subjective understanding of something, one that is rooted in the reality of certain things you know to be true. So you have an assurance of an outcome that, frankly, is until you actually do it, it's an unknown. So the writer is saying faith is the assurance, the confidence in something that can't be proven, for things that are hoped for, hoped for, things hoped for, by definition, refer to future events. Wouldn't you agree? Things that have not yet come to pass, but have been promised or are expected. Something that God has made a promise concerning something God has held out as a future event that will one day come to pass. And so our faith is inspired by a promise of God. It's our hope. But we're assured of it. We're confident in it. Why? Because it's rooted in something real and trustworthy. That is God's word. So faith is a perspective on the future, but one rooted in the reality and the truth of things that we know, not in speculation, not in fantasy or wishful thinking. It's one that trusts that the things promised will come to pass. That's faith. Why would I address that as faith? Because the fact that it concerns the outcome of future events means that it is outside the realm of knowledge until such things come to pass. But it's not an unknowable outcome. It's simply yet to be seen. Once those things do come to pass, faith is no longer required. Paul says that clearly in Romans 8.24. He says, for in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. Once something becomes reality, it's self-evident. No hope is required. No faith is necessary at that point. We see it. We know it to be true. If you were to leap off the Empire State Building, once you hit the ground, no more faith is required concerning the question, what would happen if you jumped off the Empire State Building? At that point, we completely understand what the outcome is at that point. He says it's the conviction of things not seen. The Greek word for conviction is also interesting. It's lekos, which literally means proof. And once again, unseen means something of the future. So faith is the proof of something that is not yet reality. Now, some of us may have read Hebrews 11.1 1 in its two parts as simply saying the same thing twice. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Half a dozen, one, six of the other. But that's not what he's saying. The first half defines the nature of faith. The second half defines the purpose. Why does God use faith? Our faith makes visible and tangible to the world around us something 
that is unseen otherwise, that is unknown otherwise. Were it not for our faith, the reality of the future events God has promised in his word would be completely absent in our experience and in the experience of the world. It wouldn't make him any less certain. They're coming one day, regardless of whether you agree with them or not. The point is the fact that there is a body of individuals on the earth walking around confessing the truth of this coming event and publicizing that to the world through their faith becomes proof to the world of things unseen. Its purpose is as a witness For example, your life insurance policy is a testimony to your eventual death. Is it not? Would you have bought one if you didn't think that you might die? Death is a reality. Death is a reality for all human beings. Because we know it is a reality, we buy a life insurance policy now. In a sense, you could say that policy is proof of your belief in your own coming death. Now, you just don't know when, and you hope it's not soon. But the point is, that evidence gives testimony to a future event that's otherwise unseen. So the purpose in your faith is to make testimony of the future that you hold to be true. So if your faith in the promises of Christ are proof of things that have yet to pass, then that means our faith and our obedience to the word of God now serves a purpose in God's economy so that we might be a light to a world that would otherwise be blind to these things. It's proof that the word of God is real. It's proof that it's true. It's proof that it's filled with the power to transform lives. And it's proof that what it says about the future is trustworthy. I'm not saying it's convincing to all people, but it stands as testimony nonetheless. So we now know the nature of what faith is. We know the purpose of it being at the core of what God does. Now, what is the value of it? For us, and I'm not speaking here strictly about the fact that it puts us in heaven. That's self-evident. But notice what the writer runs to in verse 2. He doesn't say, and by it, men were saved from the fires of hell. He doesn't say that, does he? Look what the writer says. He says, by faith, the men of old, referring to the saints of the Old Testament, those people gain approval. Just as a little aside here, I want to make a note. It says here, the men of old, and we know that's referring to the saints of old, particularly the ones he's about to to talk about in the rest of this chapter. But notice in this chapter, he uses examples of both men and women. So that would tell us that when he uses the word men here in the beginning, it's used in the generic sense. In other words, mankind. So it's not specific to men, and I hope that's evident, but I'm just making the point to be clear. So he's saying saints, men and women gained approval through their faith. Whose approval? The world's approval? Well, that should be self-evident. Hardly, right? As the examples are going to demonstrate, if you live out your faith, the world hates you just like they hated the Lord who bought you. So it's not the world's approval we're talking about. We're talking about the approval of God. How do you gain his approval as a saint? You see, that was the premise he sets up in verse 2. By faith, the saints of old gained approval. And when you connect the fact that these two verses just came out of chapter 10, what you come to conclude is he's not concerned with the origin of faith. It's not about becoming a Christian that is the focus of this chapter. It's living as a Christian that is the focus of this chapter. How does someone of faith gain the approval of God? By doing what the Old Testament saints did as men and women of faith. This is an issue of faith lived out, not faith acquired. He's interested in our walk whether we mature, whether we grow in the face of trials, or whether we shrink back to destruction. As we saw in the writer's warning from chapter 10, the 
topic of chapter 10 was not unbelievers. The topic of chapter 10 were believers. People who shrink back to the destruction of God's pleasure, to the destruction of the rewards that God holds out for them. So winning the approval of the Lord in this context means by faith, living in a faithful manner, seeking the Lord's approval so as to receive a full reward. That's the issue on the table here. It is about reward as a result of faithful living that is at the core of every one of these examples. So as we understand the nature, purpose, and value of saving faith, we now have to ask, well, what does that look like in action? Give me some examples, please, of people who did the right thing so that I might have a clear understanding of what I'm aiming for. So do we have some examples? I'm glad you asked. Yes, we have them right here in front of us in this chapter, and they're going to proceed here in the order they appear in Scripture, more or less, as you would go through books of the Scripture, beginning with the creation account. And each of these examples is going to illustrate these same three critical elements over and over and over again. A confidence in God's word concerning unseen events. A life that gave proof of that confidence through how they lived their faith. And the result being, for that saint, great reward. So, the nature, the purpose, and the value of saving faith will be exhibited in each of these examples. Let's start with where he does, verses 3 and 4. These are taken from the first set, in fact, of examples that we're going to cover today are all taken from the early chapters of Genesis. Verses 3 and 4, he says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. You may never have thought that your view of how the world began, your view of creation, and specifically your opinion concerning the creation account in the Bible, you may never have thought of that as a matter of faith. But oh, it is. The creation of the universe, friends, happened before there were any human witnesses to observe the event. Whether you are a creationist or whether you are an evolutionist, you were not there in the beginning to see how things came to pass. Not even the author of Genesis himself, which was Moses, was there. Therefore, any perspective that you hold on the origins of the universe, no matter whether you believe it's by evolution or otherwise, whether you believe the Bible's view in creation or some mix of the two, whatever you believe, that must be a matter of faith by definition of what the word means. It is by faith. You are assuming things that you cannot see. Now, in this case, it's concerning past events, not future events, but it's the same problem. Same reason we call it faith. Now, a faith in the word of God would lead you to a confidence that the origins of the universe are as exactly as described in Genesis 1 and 2. That would be a confidence born out of your belief, your trust in the word of God. Faith is demonstrated first and foremost by a trust in God's word concerning the beginning of all things. We believe that by his word, God was responsible for bringing the entire physical universe into existence. And then notice something the writer says here, which, by the way, refutes evolution. The writer says the world was made not out of what can be seen. In other words, not by evolution. It is faith to know that when I look out that window, everything in the universe was not made from the things I can see. But that's exactly what evolution maintains. Evolution maintains that what you see now is the product of things that came before it in the natural world. This writer says, no, faith in God's word brings us to the conclusion that what has been made 
was not made from things that I can see. In other words, it was made as it is now from nothing. When you hold to a creation view, as taught in Genesis, you give the world proof of the reality of the word of God. Now, in most cases, they respond to that proof by calling you a fool or an idiot. But regardless of the response, you do the job God has called you to do by exhibiting faith in the word, contrary to the world's view. Second example, Adam, Cain, and Abel, specifically Cain and Abel, the story of them in chapter 4 of Genesis is well known, at least the broad strokes of it are, but I find the details of what happened and why it happened are often poorly understood. And if you want the full appreciation of what transpired and why it's important, you would go back and, and relive that wonderful three or five or six years of our life when we went through all of Genesis and particularly that chapter, and I encourage you to go do that. But even so, you don't have to because the writer here actually zeroes in on the key purpose of that story. The main reason that story has been told in Scripture is, is identified here in what the writer says. The story centered around the actions of these brothers in worshiping God. Abel gave a sacrifice to God that he counted acceptable. Cain brought an offering which God looked at and counted insufficient, unacceptable. And the result of that, the result of that difference was Abel went away with a good testimony Abel showed himself to be righteous where his brother was not. And when you see that word righteous, we would use a different word. We would say saved or a believer. So we're seeing that Abel was seen to be a believer, a saint, and Cain was seen to be otherwise. Now, the question becomes, why did God count Abel's sacrifice as better testimony? And first, the word testimony means to show evidence of what you hold to be true. Proof of what you believe. So Abel brought a blood sacrifice before God as proof that he trusted in God to bring an atoning sacrifice on his behalf somewhere in the future, in the day of the Messiah. That's what all sacrifices intended to demonstrate. So by his behavior, he gave proof that he was putting his trust in God's atoning work. The gospel, in other words. And the writer says that testimony continues on even to today. Even though Abel is now dead, the recounting of his actions in Scripture and in our storytelling is further witnessing of that evidence long after he lived. His story of life lived out to the point of his own death speaks much louder than his words could ever have done. And you know he's called the first prophet in Scripture for that reason. Now, Abel was doing something right, and it was better than Cain's because, as you know in the story, Cain doesn't bring a blood sacrifice. Whereas Abel brings an animal, Cain brings offerings of the ground. The difference being that bringing a grain offering is done for thanks But it has no implicit understanding of sacrifice. There's no message in that that says, I recognize my sin, that I need blood covering for it. It's simply an acknowledgement that God blesses me. And if I pay him back a little bit, he'll give me some more. Unbelievers have been saying that to God since the beginning, since Cain, that God is a source to please me rather than a savior to save me from my sin. Therefore, Cain's testimony, what did he Prophesy. What did he testify to in his actions? He testified that he had no concern for his own sin and no need for a savior, but he did want to please the God that brings him good food. So in Genesis four, the Lord rebuked Cain, telling him he has the same opportunity to please the Lord that his brother did. If only he would trust in the sacrifice that is waiting at the doorpost, a veiled reference to the Passover sacrifice, the blood on the doorpost. If Cain would trust in the blood of the Passover, he could have the same pleasure of God that Abel did. That by faith alone you achieve that. Instead, it led to his jealousy, ultimately hatred, and murder. So what do we learn from their example? Well, first, faith in God's promises require that you honor the one who gave the opportunity for you to be a part of those promises. 
It's all about him. You have to have a confession of what you believe specifically concerning him and his provision for sin. That's where it begins. If you skip that step, nothing else matters. Furthermore, faith lives on beyond us as our life is a testimony with a power greater than our words. So it matters what we do with our life. Finally, persecution at the hands of unbelievers is the common experience of all believers. Friend, if the first two prodigy of Adam and woman killed one another, one killed the other, one being the the unbeliever killing the believer, if that's how the first family experienced life, then it's self-evident that persecution of unbelievers to believers is a commonplace, regular event in the body and should be expected. You can't let the discomfort of persecution become an excuse to shrink back from your faith. So, two examples. Faith begins with a trust in God's word. Secondly, faith is lived out in an understanding of who God is and that his sacrifice is at the center of our walk with him and that it will inevitably lead to persecution. Next, the writer addresses this mysterious story of Enoch, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Enoch's something we've talked more about as well in chapter 5 of Genesis. I'll keep telling you, go back there if you want the full story. It's a brief mention even in chapter 5 of Genesis. It doesn't get a lot of play there either. In fact, for the most part, it's quoted here in its entirety. So really, you work from a very little. The original Hebrew, as it's written in chapter 5, speaking of how Enoch's life came to an end, it literally says he was here and then he was not here. That's a stark departure from what Moses typically does in the genealogies, right? That's why it stands out. Everyone else had a beginning and end, and their life is counted in years. Enoch, he doesn't get the normal treatment. He comes into the world on a given day, yes, but then he just sort of isn't here again at some point. The closest parallel you have in Scripture for this kind of an event is the resurrection of the church. A moment in the future when those who are alive won't experience death because the Lord will claim them from the earth without waiting for their natural body to die. Instead, the believer passes directly from one body into the next, as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15. It would seem, therefore, that the writer of Hebrews has included Enoch in the hall of faith as a contrast to Abel's story. Remember, Abel died a death at the hands of the enemy. Enoch escaped death altogether. What's the message? Some believers are going to be martyred. Others are going to be raptured. Abel was the first murder victim in Scripture. Enoch was the first man never to see death in Scripture. Both men had good testimonies. Both men pleased God. What do you learn? You can please God by faith and be murdered, or you can please God by faith and be raptured. That's in God's control. You're not guaranteed the outcome on earth that you might expect for having been someone who walked closely with God if you set your eyes on earthly standards of performance of earthly success measures. The way our life ends is not a measure of God's satisfaction with us. What counts is what comes in the next life. That's where you see the rewards. That's where you really know God's pleasure. How we pass from here to there is irrelevant. In the big scheme of things, it is irrelevant. I know sitting here now and living in this life and the body that we have, we care about how we end, and it does matter. And if you gave me the choice between those two, I know how that choice would go in this room, right? I get that. But if you're too concerned with that, overly concerned with that, you understand, don't you, how that can affect your walk, how it can lead you away from places God wants you to be 
because you're more interested in saving your earthly life. And as Christ said, those who want to keep their life will lose it, meaning they will lose what matters most in eternity for what they are willing to try to preserve here. Some wise man once said that the one is no fool who trades what he cannot keep for what he cannot lose. So what is the way you please God? Pleasing God, as he ends in chapter 11, verse 6, rests on faith alone. But faith has two parts. First, he says, saving faith in verse 6 begins with understanding that God is. But to believe that God is doesn't simply mean to believe he exists. How do I know that? How do I know that's not what the writers are referring to? Well, because the testimony of Scripture elsewhere, particularly in James specifically, tells us that simply believing that God exists is of no value. James says in chapter 2, verse 19, you believe God is one. In other words, you believe he exists. And then the writer says, you do well. Sarcastically, he says that you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. He's saying even sinful, rebellious demons who have their whole life's mission set against God, they know he exists. The fact is so obvious that even those who are sworn in allegiance with Satan will at least acknowledge the truth of God's existence. That takes nothing. He goes on to say they're so convinced in the reality of an all-powerful judge of all creation that James says their knowledge of his existence causes them to shudder in fear at their own coming judgment. That's how sure they are of his existence. And yet, that recognition did not save them from their fate. Isn't that interesting? They can be so certain of his existence, they can be fearful of him, but it doesn't stop them from rebellion, did it? So believing that God is, is not merely believing it is an existence. That does not please God. The demons are not pleasing God. It means to believe the testimony of who he is, to accept what he says about himself. That's what it means to believe he is. It means believing he is the one and only living God to accept his representative. That is the son of God. Jesus himself says in John eight forty two, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. So when we say we believe God is, we believe who he said he is by the word to include who his son is. But then he goes further. He says faith requires that we believe God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Remember, the writer isn't defining saving faith here. He's defining faith lived out. Saving faith is belief in Christ as Messiah. We get that. But faith lived out realizes the reality of a reward waiting for those who let their faith guide them in life. And in that way, their faith leads them to pleasing the Father. And without that kind of life, it is impossible to please the Father. Said another way, the fact that you have saving faith is not of your own. So it's of no credit to you. What you do with your saving faith, that has the potential to please the Lord. And if you understand that there are rewards for those who live a life of faith, then you will satisfy the expectations of chapter 11 and of the Bible. Then you will be the kind of person who pleases the Lord. Because, friends, you get more of what you reward. If our concerns are whether God is pleased with us so as to maximize our reward, we will then have the proper perspective on which to live a life that pleases him. On the other hand, if we give no thought to our reward, or even the possibility of it, or are ignorant of it, then who will we please? Inevitably, we'll please ourselves. Because that's where we'll find our reward. Friends, you are saved by a faith that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But you are rewarded for a life lived in accordance with that faith. And it's that life of faith that he's trying to encourage Do you please Christ? Are you structuring your life to meet that goal? 
then you're living by faith. On the other hand, if you have assumed that every Christian is free to live without concern for judgment because you've received God's grace, then you haven't understood either the Bible's teaching on faith or on the judgment of the believer. Your faith has to be rooted in the promises of God concerning Christ, yes, but you must live in the expectation that there are rewards available for those who serve him. You live with eyes for eternity. When we come back next week, we'll pick up where we left off and go into the next series of examples to assemble a better understanding of what it looks like to live in a life that pleases the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, the reminder that a life lived out is the means to pleasing you, a life lived according to faith. And not merely a, a life that assumes that because grace has come, all has been settled. Grace has settled our sin on the cross without a doubt. But it's also opened the opportunity, Father, to please you through our service. And that remains yet unsettled. Will we please you? Will we serve you? Or will we serve ourselves? That's the question each man and woman will wrestle with until the day we stand before you. We don't wrestle alone. We wrestle in your power and your spirit's guidance by your word. Knowing, Father, that you can bring us to where we need to be. But it is yet still a fight, Father, for our flesh wars against you and the enemy is always present, seeking to stumble us. Who will we listen to, Father? The book of Hebrews is counseling us to listen to your word, to live with a conviction and an expectation of reward so that we may please you. Father, give us the hope and the confidence and the conviction to do that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.